Welcome to Citizen Science, stories of science we can do together. Coming to you virtually live from SciStarter's virtual world headquarters. In this episode, we'll learn about some of the citizen science projects operated by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and how you can get involved. Hey, Bob. Hey, Caroline. Nice weather we're having, assuming you're you know, a meteorologist and nice means kind of crazy. It's the middle of winter here in DC and I was out in my t-shirt catching some rays one day and then we got a foot of snow. Weather has definitely been uh, unexpected this uh -huh. winter. <laughs> While they're having winter tornadoes in the middle of the country, there is some record setting snow out west. Mm -hmm. Our friends at the National Weather Service definitely have their hands full keeping up with it all. Fortunately, though, they don't have to do it alone. There are tens of thousands of citizen scientists diligently measuring weather conditions every day and reporting their data. The National Weather Service has been relying on contributions from citizens since it first began 130 years ago. So the National Weather Service is the part of the federal government that handles the science behind weather broadcasts, warns about dangerous weather, and takes on all sorts of weather-related work related to public safety. And they're just one part of NOAA. NOAA does weather-related work, they monitor the seas, they protect endangered species, they support Ooh. environmental literacy work, and wow. so much more. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> there are tons of citizen science efforts at NOAA, and today we'll be learning a little bit more about them. Fun fact, did you know that SciStarter has worked on a few NOAA-supported projects? Really? That must have been before my time. To, uh, like what? It's, it's ongoing, actually. I will huh. tell you more. In partnership <laughs> with museums and science centers across the United States and with support from NOAA, SciStarter has worked to create microsites where you can find spotlighted citizen science projects and other activities like forums that correspond to different environmental hazards like extreme heat, extreme precipitation, and more, hmm. all highlighted on SciStarter.org forward slash N-O-A-A forward slash NOAA. Wow. So there are all sorts of ways you can get involved with citizen science to, you know, monitor weather, address environmental hazards, and help track the change in climate. You can even analyze NOAA data that other citizen scientists have collected. To get a broader overview on NOAA citizen science, our first conversation is with Katie Palubicki, Outreach Coordinator at the NOAA National Centers for Environmental Information, our NCEI, and Trinity Foreman, her colleague and a communications consultant. Hey, Katie and Trinity, could you introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am Katie Polabicki. I am an outreach coordinator with uh, NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. And um, my role is to do a fair amount of communications work. So that's reaching out to the general public, writing web stories, and social media plans that tell the general public about our science and kind of take really technical concepts and break them down into something that everyone um, can understand. So that's my primary role. Another part of what I do is I work with um, what we call um, our customers um, is folks who utilize our data and kind of understand what their needs are and how we can help meet those needs better. Um, so whether it's a different type of data or, you know, a different file format that they need or something like that, a lot of my role is also connecting with those folks and really determining what it will work best for them so that we as an organization can better serve their needs in the future. Great, thanks. And Trinity, how about you? 
Yes, definitely. Um, my name's Trinity Foreman, and I work as a government contractor with ICMS at NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. And I work alongside Katie, but I do a lot of uh, my title is communications consultant. So I work a little bit all over the place with um, making content for social media, but I really specialize on getting our data resources in a format that's accessible to teachers and educators and getting that data out into the hands of educators. So what sort of data does NOAA collect and archive? Oh gosh, um, there is there is so much <laughs> data in our archive. We usually say we collect data from the um, surface of the sun to the bottom of the ocean. So it's a, it's a very uh, thorough and complex collection of environmental data. And really, you know, our users are, span a great variety. So any, we get requests um, from students in elementary school working on projects to um, scientists um, at some of the um, biggest research institutions writing papers and doing research. Um, on environmental issues. So there's there's really a, a huge span of users for our data, and we try to make it as accessible and usable as possible um, for all of those user groups. So, um, you know, a fifth grader will be able to use our data, but so will a um, Harvard professor, which is really neat. Can you give us an example of how citizen scientists can contribute? Sure. Um, so... With, I can speak to CrowdMag a bit. Um, CrowdMag is a phone application that uses the magnetometer and within the phones of all of smartphones that we have. And that app really sets it up so that that data that you really walk around and collect without realizing goes into our archive and informs things like the world magnetic model. So they're, with the phone app being programmed to collect that data, it really, wherever you are, and if you have a phone, you're able to directly collect data and have it go into the archive. And they, there is some um, checking of the data to make sure that it's you know quality and able to inform our science, but that's really the pathway. So you don't have to have a license, a master's, a doctorate or anything like that to contribute to worldwide how we understand the magnetic model, which is our understanding of the magnetic wow. sphere of the Earth. I thought I was smart. I never heard of the world magnetic model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an international tool for understanding the how magnetism works around the world. And it informs things like your GPS and your phone and also helps with navigation in um, airplanes and things like that. So it's a really important tool and it gets regularly updated and things like CrowdMag help inform our understanding of it. And how about all the weather data that you collect? We're going to be talking with a group involved with that later in the podcast, but you know, what can you tell us about how that sort of weather data gets used by the public? Well, I will say that there in a different department of NCI, there are our customer service, which actually Katie is involved in. They deal a lot with these really unique requests and we actually get to hear about them internally. And you have things like people having their tractor explode and then they need to go to insurance to figure out um, if there was a lightning storm around there to claim it as that's why, you know, it's very interesting one case scenario. They need to pray prove that to their insurance company, but they use our data to inform that. And things like certified weather reports can help with that. Um, but 
I don't know. Do you know of any more off the top of your head, Katie? Or- Gosh, I know. I feel like I'm under pressure right now to think of all of our really cool requests that we've gotten in. Um, we do get a lot of requests uh, from teachers for um, lesson plans. A lot of teachers are really interested in our um, tsunami and earthquake, our natural hazard data. Um, we have set up quite a few resources that um, that kind of visualize that data and is really easy to use in the classroom. And actually, Trinity could probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, but that's one thing that's been really popular. Um, I know folks have used, you know, just um, our like the arbitrometry data was recently used to construct a um, kind of a scale model of Lake Michigan uh, for a museum. And that's pretty neat to see. And so kind of taking the data and actually having some real world application of it is always something that's that's really cool for us to see and, and, and interesting. Now, if there's a news event or something like, um, I know the solar flares that happened recently, do you then see a spike in interest in that topic? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, any anything timely, anything newsworthy, we usually end up with a spike in interest. And we do try to... Um, be on the ball about that. So recently, you know, there were some solar flares that um, caused an aurora in, you know, the lower United States, lower than normally would happen. And so we, when we found out about that, we worked with our partners at the Space Weather Prediction Center to find out that was happening. And then we posted on our social media channels um, that, you know, keep an eye on the sky, the aurora is coming. So we tried to stay on the ball and get a good uh, pulse of what people are going to be interested in and what's really valuable to the general public. And those things tend to do really well on social media. There's a lot of engagement. We do a lot of conversation with our data users about that. So that's, that's always an exciting thing to see. So how do people gain access to this wealth of data? Um, absolutely. I'll let um, I'll, t- I'll chat a little bit about that and then let Trinity talk about the best way for students to to access it um, on our website. It's it's pretty user friendly for the most part. If you know what kind of data you're interested, let's say it's, uh, you know, bathymetry data or it's weather and climate data. Um, our website is split into products that that break down, you know, here's weather on this historical day and you can go and check that out. So um, there's always, you know, the option to just kind of Uh, choose your own adventure and walk through our website on your own and find the data you need. Um, Another option is to email us directly. We have customer service representatives that are always more than happy to help. Um, And if you email us at ncei.info at noaa.gov, somebody will get back to you and help you access the specific data you need. And even in some cases, we can connect you directly with the scientists who manages that data or who even collected that data and really give you a, a great resource um, in, in your interests. Yeah. And also, if you're interested in having a kind of general understanding of our data, we on our website at nci.noa.gov, under the resources tab, we have a tab for education where we've taken some of our more accessible data tools and frame them so that they're easy to understand. And we have one for tsunamis, we have one for bathymetry, and it introduces some of our data resources with some hands-on activities. And most recently, um, also our news section on the website, we do a good job of summarizing 
upcoming updates and about our resources on um, making sure that people know about them. But very recently, we released a, a teacher guide and a worksheet for our tsunami animation of it's a time lapse of all the tsunamis that have happened on Earth. It's really fun for anyone really where you can scan back and forth and see the tsunamis as they happen and um, in this digital scape. And then we've taken that and introduced it in a way where it is more accessible for teachers to bring into the classroom because there's a big push in classrooms to bring real data into the classroom. So finding ways like that to really have the data be engaging and exciting and something that's useful and relevant um, is really a goal of our educational resources that we try and make. I think my final question would be, is there anything else about the archive that you haven't told us yet that you think people should know? Um, I think, you know, one thing that is really important to understand is that data feels very daunting um, and unapproachable. And we've worked really hard at NCEI to develop products and maps and resources that make data interesting and fun and accessible for all ages. So even if you think you're not going to understand the data or understand the science, we've really worked hard to create products that will, um, will, will help you understand it and makes it very approachable in a fun way. Great, thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Bye, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, thanks again. NOAA is probably best known for the National Weather Service, which has a long historical connection with citizen science. Weather data was one of the first types of data NOAA gathered from the public, and it's one of the most popular areas of NOAA citizen science activity today. COCO RAS, which stands for the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, is a network of volunteers in the U.S. and Canada who measure and report precipitation. Being from Florida, it definitely took me a minute to realize that snow counts as precipitation. <laughs> I'm more familiar with the afternoon thunderstorm variety. Yeah, but, you know, precipitation is any kind of water that coalesces or precipitates from the sky. You know, that includes drizzle, sleet, hail, you name it. Coco Ross volunteers track all of this data, and it's used by the National Weather Service, city utilities, meteorologists, and more. But we'll let Melissa Griffin, assistant state climatologist at the South Carolina State Climatology Office, and Matthew Manet, director of the World Data Center for Meteorology Asheville with NOAA National Centers for Environmental Information, tell you more about it. Could you guys introduce yourselves and tell us what you do? Sure. My name is Matt Manet, and I work at NOAA NCEI in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, I also happen to be the director of the World Data Center for Meteorology, which was set up by the International Council of Science back in 1958 during the Cold War when it was important to have uh, international archives for scientific data that sort of bridged political divides. And Asheville has been serving that function uh, ever since then. And so we have a lot of international data. So I work on uh, lots of different data sets. And one of the data sets that we uh, I work on and that I'm the principal investigator for is the, uh, it's called the Global Historical Climatology Network Daily Data Set that has a whole bunch of different types of data from different networks uh, integrated into it, one of which is COCO-RAWS. All right, so Matt is all about the data. I love it. Um, Melissa, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and what you do with Coco Rose? 
Sure. Um, I'm Melissa Griffin. I serve as the Assistant State Climatologist for South Carolina, and I am also the coordinator, the state coordinator for COCROSS in South Carolina. So I act as one of the initial points of contact when new observers are sign into the program or sign up for the program and then work with some of the regional coordinators and even some of the local coordinators um, to make sure that as observers get started, they have everything that they need, uh, that we answer their questions in a timely fashion so they can get, as soon as they get their rain gauge out, they can go ahead and start reporting. Awesome. So um, one thing I always like to establish is we have a pretty broad listenership, you know, people from all around the world um, and people who may have never heard of Coco Raws before. So um, I'm, I'm not sure who wants to take this, whoever I guess jumps first, but what is Coco Raws and how do you get started and who can get started? Where in the world do you have to be? Do you want right. me to take that go, one, Matt? Go for it, Melissa. <laughs> okay. So COCORAS stands for the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. It was initially established at a, a, a kind of a bucket survey in uh, 1997 after the Fort Collins flood. Um, it was uh started by the Colorado Climate Center and, um, the, you know, just trying to figure out the, the rainfall that led to that devastating flood in the area. Um, as the program started in Colorado, other states in the West started to get an interest in, in all these additional rainfall points. So from what started as 50 observers across the front range of the Rockies in Colorado has become an international uh, science program and it was about the mid-2000s, so somewhere around between 2005 and 2008, that the program really spread across the United States. So other states started getting on board with the idea of, of having uh, weather enthusiasts at the time, now we call them citizen scientists, uh, involved in helping monitor precipitation, so rain, hail, and snow. Um across the across the US. So to get started, anyone can get started. That's one of the great things about this program. It's a grassroots program. We have people from all walks of life of different ages. We have school groups and uh, classrooms that are, uh, you know, mon that monitor the weather and, and report on a daily basis. Master gardeners, farmers, you know, retired NWS employees, uh, current NWS employees. Um, just anyone who seems to have an interest in the weather is a perfect candidate it for, for this particular program. Wow. And, and just statistically, are there places that you wish, are there places you wish you had more observers saying, boy, that's a really important place, but for some reason we don't have enough people there? Um, I know that there, you know, every state has an area where we wish we had an observer and the, kind of that data gap. And that's really where it's important to kind of foster those those new observers that sign in those areas and look for observers. Um, you know, here in South Carolina, we've got a couple of counties where we don't even have one observer. And I know that that is, you know, that is kind of in indicative of other states too, where you may only have one observation for a really large county too. So we're always looking for new observers. And even if an observer takes a look at the map and goes, wow, they, they've got pretty good coverage here. They may not need my dot. You know, rainfall is such a, a variable, uh, you know, value across even short distance that, you know, it, two neighbors, you know, half a mile apart can have differing values. And it's important, especially when you're looking at, uh, you know, the localized rainfall, when you're looking at drought, floods, having a dense network of those precipitation observations can be critical in those times. 
And um, so the number one question I get at SciStarter is, what if I do something wrong? Will I mess up the data? So what would you say to those people who are nervous or scared about getting started? Well, I mean, it can be daunting because you realize that the data that you're providing is going to be used by meteorologists, climatologists, emergency managers, hydrologists. But there are mechanisms to go in and, uh, you know, Edit, a, edit an issue if it, it exists. You know, uh, there is a quality control that is done at Kokoros before it's set, sent up to, uh, you know, the, the National Centers for Environmental Information. Coordinators are usually looking at the data on a regular basis. And if we have a question about an observation, you know, we'll reach out to the observer and say, hey, you put eight inches, did you maybe need 0.8 inches or was it eight o'clock in the morning when you made that observation? And it's really easy for us to edit that before it actually makes it into the archive. So, you know, we're constantly looking at these observations as they come in. So we usually can catch any mistakes and correct them. Cool. I mean, um, Matt, at the beginning, you mentioned, uh, you know, the manifold data sets you work with. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about like trends that you're seeing in data, maybe in South Carolina, as well as data nationally? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've seen now that we have cocoa rods, because we have a higher density of gauges, um, the quality control of the data has actually been a challenge because there have been so many extreme events. So record rainfall, um, you know, we're seeing, especially along the Gulf Coast, a lot of slow moving tropical systems um, in Texas, several tropical storms where if we didn't have cocoa rods, it would be much harder to really evaluate the the total volume of rainfall. Hmm. And what would help you with that? I mean, I know you, is having a, um, a greater number of or greater density of reports, is that going to help? Are there holes in your data? Or, boy, I wish we had somebody in Caribou, or I wish we had somebody here. How does that play out? Yeah, I mean, there are still data sparse areas, especially in sparsely populated areas, as you would expect. Um, it seems like in, in certain communities, the word about Cocoa Ross gets out and you get a lot of observers. Like where I live in Buncombe County, North Carolina, there's so many climate data geeks that basically I have a, I'm a Cocoa Ross observer. Everyone I know that I work with is. So we have a lot of gauges in our county, but there's other counties in North Carolina and South Carolina, as Melissa mentioned, where we could really use more gauges I was just looking this morning um, at northern Minnesota. There's this pretty data sparse there, um, not surprisingly. But as Melissa was saying too, you can never have too many gauges. So like I I also give Kokoraz rain gauges as housewarming gifts. So anytime someone moves into a new home, even if they're just down the street, I try to get them hooked up as a Kokoraz observer. Because especially summertime rainfall, convective rainfall from thunderstorms is so variable that really you can't you can't have too many in any area. And certainly we can accommodate as many observers as are interested in joining. Great. All right. I'm getting one. I'm convinced. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I love that. I mean, that's all I have. Should I, unless I was just going to see if there's anything that we've left out that you guys want to be sure that we share with listeners. I would encourage listeners to just um, dive in and, you know, get used to making observations. And especially um, in the era we're in with um, climate change, you know, the more observations we have of rainfall, the better off everyone is.
This is amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you so much to you both. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, fun fact, Coco Raws is a SciStarter affiliate. So if you use the same email address for your Coco Raws and SciStarter accounts, the number and frequency of your contributions will track in your SciStarter dashboard. That means that you can help monitor the weather nationwide and get credit from SciStarter for doing it. Super. All right. So now while weather patterns and ocean circulation are well-known areas of NOAA research, they're also active in other areas, including geomagnetism, the phenomenon that gives us the aurora or northern lights, and also that helps guide the migration of birds, butterflies, sea turtles, and other animals. Citizen scientists help NOAA study this too. With the CrowdMag project, citizen scientists from around the world use their smartphones and the CrowdMag app to take magnetic measurements, monitoring Earth's changing magnetic field and helping improve the accuracy of magnetic navigation systems. Today, we have two members of the research team behind the project, Manoj Nair, a research scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences and NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information, as well as Brian Mayer, a physical scientist at NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information, as well as a rock star volunteer, Judy Cox, joining us. Hey, you guys. Maybe, um, Brian, do you want to introduce yourself first and tell us a little bit about what you do at CrowdMag? Yeah, so hello, uh, my name is Brian Meyer. I am a federal employee for NOAA's NCEI, the National Centers for Environmental Information, and I am a data manager and outreach specialist for the CrowdMag project. Fantastic, maybe um, Manoj, do you wanna go next? Uh, hi, uh, my name is Manoj Nair. Uh, I'm a research scientist with the uh, University of Colorado series and uh, NOAA's National Center for Environmental Information. My background is uh, geomagnetic uh, data modeling, processing, and uh, and uh, also CrowdMag project, which we started almost uh, seven, eight years ago. Great. Awesome. And last but certainly not least, Judy, could you give us a little bit of an intro to yourself and what you do with CrowdMag? Yes, hi everyone. My name is Judy Hadley and I live in Lincoln, Rhode Island. I'm a citizen scientist with an active interest in geology. And I've also been involved in my community for the past 22 years in groups such as the Conservation Commission, Land Trust, and the Blackstone River Watershed Council. Wow, thanks Judy. So um, before we go any further, Brian, could you sort of explain for a layperson, you know, what geomagnetism is? Yeah, so as rocks are created by extruding of lava or um, magma, they lock in a certain magnetism based on the iron content of the rocks being cooled down below what's called the Curie point, where uh, anything that's hotter than the Curie point has no magnetism, and anything cooler than that has uh, both remnant magnetism and induced magnetism. So remnant magnetism is just locked in, just forever, um, has a magnetic signature. And then Mm -hmm. induced magnetism is a magnetism that's created by uh, introducing these rocks 
through another magnetic field, such as the magnetic field created by the core field. And so the combination of this locked-in magnetism with this generated magnetism creates a magnetic signature for these rocks. And uh, CrowdMag is one of the ways that citizen scientists can go out and look at the magnetic signatures of the rocks that surround them. Cool stuff. But maybe really quick, if we want to back up, because um, let's say I'm a volunteer. I find I, I'm just on the SciStarter Project Finder. I come across CrowdMag's SciStarter page, and I click the button to go over to CrowdMag's um, app or website. How do I get started? How do I participate? And I guess who can participate and where? Maybe, Minaj, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to Nova CrowdMag website, and there are links to Apple App Store and Google Play Store where users can uh, download the app um, to their phones. Once you install the app, there'll be some permission questions and also some instructions which enables you to use the app to collect magnetic data from around you, right? I mean, we can, we have currently an idea called MAGTivity, that is magnetic activity you can start. For example, when you walk around, uh, you can start uh, a magnetic measurements along the path. And the users also have an option to uh, record at a certain frequency per, uh, by going into the settings. And once they finish the measurement and if they indicated that, you know, they share the data with NOVA, the app uh, on the background send the no data to NOVA's ingest servers where uh, we collect this data from around the world. Uh, we get about 1 million data points per month from uh, different users around the world. And if you go to CrowdMy website and look at the map, you can see the data collected by other people uh, and also including you. Oh, okay. And and is there sort of a tutorial or something to um, familiarize people with it? Because you mentioned you can set it for certain frequencies and things like that. We actually do have a what's called a tiny tutorial put together by the NOAA communications team. Um, so if you just search online tiny tutorial and CrowdMag, it, it'll pop right up. And that'll give people just a general orientation to the uh, to the app, but will but doesn't go into necessarily all the little details that um, some of our more advanced users could. Oh, okay. Take, take advantage of. Great. Can I can I follow up with a question for Judy? So so how are you interacting with CrowdMag and 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 what's interesting about it for you, Judy? Well, I guess you could say it started when I. Um, began an honors project with a geology course that I took at our uh, local community college. And the topic that I decided to pursue is our state rock, which is Cumberlandite. And it is very magnetic. So what I wanted to try to do is, based on the Rhode Island bedrock map, it shows where the boundary line of this ore body is. And then it, it borders another rock of Gabbro and another rock of um, granite, which is not magnetic. So I wanted to see if I could take my phone and use the CrowdMag app and walk a certain area 
and see if it showed uh, a boundary line with, you know, the uh, magnetic signal that came back. Mm -hmm. And we tried it and I actually went up with a friend of mine who has a different type of phone. And so we walked the boundary line and we looked at the results on her phone with the, the colored dots in the CrowdMag app. And it, it, it showed it as clear as day. Huh. And that's what, you know, really got me going. It was wow. really pretty exciting to see that on, on this um, app. That is so cool. So, so you're not only collecting data for the CrowdMag researchers, but also kind of following an interest of your own that was more local. So, Brian, for other potential volunteers, for, for people who want to follow in Judy's footsteps, do you have any advice on how to provide you with good, usable data? I would say that there's really no such thing as bad data for CrowdMag. Um, the word crowd is for crowdsourced. So we're looking to get as much data from as many people from as many locations as possible. So any information that you can send us is, is welcome. And we will, as the subject matter experts, do our best to clean the data, make sure it's within our tolerances and we remove spikes and things like that so that when we put it into our science products, we're using the best data possible. But as far as a user, there is no, there's nothing you can do to really mess up your compass or anything like that. There's no, there's really no wrong answer. And, and any data that you send to us is, is really appreciated. Well, cool. Um, you sort of explained this a little bit, but can you maybe more specifically say what sort of research this is used for? You know, what scientists, um, different scientists learn from this? And maybe Minaj, if you're still with us, you could take the first stab at this one and we can let Brian ring in. Yeah, sure. So uh, the idea of a CrowdMag started um, 10 years ago when we used to work with uh, Apple and Google. Uh, they use our model called World Magnetic Model and they use this model in the phone. So when, when you take the phone out, it actually points, you know, the map up points to the north because it has a digital compass in it. And they needed this uh, correction from magnetic north, true north, which comes from this world magnetic model we create within our group. So we had this idea that we work with them and why not we take this data from them and then fit a model like world magnetic model. Can we create a citizen science created magnetic field model of the earth interior field? And uh, we succeeded that uh, to a certain extent. Now we are able to create a magnetic field model of the Earth purely from citizen science data to certain uh, horizontal resolution. We, we are still not close to the satellite quality uh, model. So that's the first uh, scientific product out of CrowdMag uh, database. And And how many more, if you had you know, 10 times more citizen scientists, would that make a big difference? It certainly make a difference. Uh, so we are basically looking at a trade-off between the data accuracy versus data coverage. So that means in, in another way, if we can cover the whole world with the bad, you know, poor quality data from smartphone, but we can cover, 
complete coverage around the globe, then we can create an equally good uh, model. So in order to address this issue, currently NOVA has funded us to develop a flight mode. And this is especially, I like to mention this in this podcast that, so the flight mode, what allows the users is to measure the magnetic data at, you know, in the commercial plane travel, where you can put that into a uh, airplane model. More. Oh, wow. You have to sign up pilots. You have to get every pilot to join and then just imagine. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. So it sounds like you have some exciting things in the works for CrowdMag, but um, is there any other like call to action for our listeners who might want to get involved from all around the world or anything else about CrowdMag that you haven't said yet that you think people should know? Maybe, Brian, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that you can combine your general day-to-day activities, hiking, biking, walking, running, all those things that get you out and moving that you love to do, you could do all that while contributing to science, while making our maps and our understanding of the Earth's magnetic field that much better by just turning on the app and throwing it in your pocket and going about your day and participating in these magnetivity events. And uh, you could do all that very simply, and we can't even tell you how much we would appreciate it. Great. I love that. Um, Minaj, do you have any other final thoughts for us or calls to action for our listeners about CrowdMag? So, I mean, the only thing I want to add is, is that um, the magnetic field around you is a fundamental force uh, of the nature. And for a lot of people and students, a first measurement of this unknown or unseen field around you can happen through crowd map, right? I mean, take the phone around and map the magnetic field around your place. And that can be really a fun activity and also kind of learning this this uh, extremely important uh, force, uh, which in many ways, you know, shape our universe. I love that. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for talking to us today. We appreciate you. Yeah. Good luck uh, with your podcast. And uh, thanks. Bye. Thank you for having us. Wow. Color me impressed by all the ways you can get started with citizen science through NOAA and explore citizen science data, too. And whether Santa gave you a rain gauge for Christmas or not, we're confident you can find some way to better understand the weather, environmental hazards, and the world around us through NOAA's citizen science work. Find links to the SciStarter profiles for all the featured projects and more information about NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information in our show notes. This podcast is brought to you each month by SciStarter, where you'll find thousands of citizen science projects, events, and tools. It's all at SciStarter.org. That's S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.org. SciStarter's founder is Darlene Cavalier. And thank you so much to you, the listener and the citizen scientist, for getting involved and making a difference. If you have any ideas you want to share with us and any things you want to hear on this podcast, get in touch with us at info at SciStarter.org. Once again, our email address is info at SciStarter.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.